Great, Martin, thank you very much. May I pray for us as we look at those verses. What shall I do then with this man who is called the Christ? Jesus, who is called the Christ? That was Pilate's question, and it's our question uh, this evening, Lord Jesus, as we read of you here. We pray that we would respond in the way that we should, uh, that we would hear your voice speaking loud and clear to us, and we'd have hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Amen. Well, there's something uh, naturally dramatic, isn't there, about a trial You don't have had to have been part of one uh, to know that. Uh, It's a staple, isn't it, of uh, TV drama and great literature. Uh, At Christmas, I watched um, Agatha Christie's, or the adaptation of Agatha Christie's, The Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, Many of you might have watched that as well. Uh, You can think of lots of soap operas, whether it's EastEnders or Coronation Street or something. At some point, when the ratings are flagging, they'll boost it with some kind of dramatic trial scene uh, to get slightly more highbrow. Think about To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, or something like that. Uh, there's something naturally dramatic about a trial. It doesn't have to be fictional either, does it? I was reading just the other week about the increase that uh, commentators have noticed in the interest in uh, sort of real crime or true life crime and all these sort of documentaries and uh, dramas that you see on, on TV and such like. Uh, you just have to think of the press coverage of notorious trials, perhaps like O.J. Simpson sort of a, de- a few uh, decades ago, or, or even just uh, last year as the trial wasn't there of the Brexit appeal that reached the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a natural kind of drama to a trial scene. Well, like any drama, uh, there's characters who are involved, aren't there? And you have some ready-made characters in a trial. Uh, you've got the prisoner, haven't you, in the dock, uh, who is on trial and whose uh, future depends on the outcome of the, uh, of the decision. Uh, you've got the judge or the jury who are there to weigh up the evidence and to uh, pass sentence uh, on the, uh, the prisoner. And then, of course, you've got the crowd in the gallery who are waiting and watching. Perhaps you've got the victims up there. They're waiting and watching. They're baying for justice, or perhaps they're baying for uh, somebody to be, to be uh, let off. Well, tonight we have a trial, don't we? And we have all those essential ingredients in it for uh, some drama. We've got uh, a prisoner in the dock. We've got a judge uh, on the bench. And we've got a crowd uh, in the gallery. Well, I want to examine each of those sort of main characters, as it were, in the, uh, the story before us, as Matthew presents, us, presents them to us. And I want to look at the verdict that was reached. Well, I also want us to consider what our verdict would be. To imagine ourselves, if, as it were, as part of the drama as well. And what's the verdict that we would pass on the prisoner in the dock? What do we make of him? Well, perhaps more pointedly, what verdict might he pass on you or me? Let's uh, dive in, shall we? Let's look at the first character. In the dock, we have a silent king. A silent king. Uh, Well, Jesus is on trial uh, before the Romans, and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll be following our series, and you'll know that actually this is the third trial that Jesus has had to endure. Uh, Why he needed yet another one probably requires a bit of explanation uh, for you. Uh, So the first trial that uh, Jesus endured was at his arrest. Uh, He was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, that's in uh, chapter uh, 26, verse 57. And as far as we can tell, it was here that the Jewish leaders examined Jesus 
and put together the charge sheets against him. Uh, well, as we saw the other week, the, the trial itself was an absolute shambles. It was a travesty of a trial. Uh, the Jewish law explicitly stated that all criminal trials had to be tried during the day, and it happened at night, so clearly it was a, uh, a farce from that perspective. Uh, they had to take place in the Sanhedrin's official meeting place. Well, it wasn't the high priest's house, so that was uh, another uh, thing that was uh, irregularity, shall we say. Uh, all the evidence had to be guaranteed by a minimum of two independent witnesses. And again, uh, there was nothing like that uh, when Jesus was on trial. Uh, all the rules were completely ignored by the Sanhedrin at the trial of Jesus. Uh, so extreme was their hatred of him. They were prepared to do anything they could, even ignore their own rules, in order to fix uh, the, uh, the, the result, uh, to fix the, uh, the verdict, to get rid of him. And yet, their power was limited. And this is why Jesus came to find himself in front of the Romans. Uh, so Judea, at this time, was a Roman province. And that meant that it was under Roman law. And Roman law made it very clear that a death sentence could only be passed by the Roman governor. And it could only be carried out by the Roman authorities. Uh, so the Jewish courts, the Sanhedrin, had to come up with some kind of uh, charge and uh, prove it against Jesus in order to persuade the Romans that this man was guilty of a capital crime and deserved death. So that's what's uh, kind of going on here. Well, the stakes couldn't be any higher, could they, for Jesus? Here he is, he's on trial for uh, his life. He's standing before the man who will decide whether he lives or dies. And yet, what's the overwhelming impression that we have of Jesus from this chapter? The overwhelming impression, I think, that we have is of his silence, simply. Uh, Jesus is absolutely serene and composed, isn't he? Uh, Again and again, Matthew tells us that he made no response to the charges as they were brought against him. And even Pilate himself was amazed at his response. All he would confirm was that, yep, he was indeed the king of the Jews, uh, as they said. Uh, Well, surely it's because Jesus is the king that he responds as he does. Because the truth is that actually he is the one who is in control of the proceedings. It's not the Sanhedrin. Uh, It's not even the Romans. Uh, He doesn't need to defend himself against this, what is effectively slander, false accusations. Uh, Actually, if he defended himself, that would simply give them a a kind of legitimacy and a respectability that they don't deserve. They're absolutely rubbish, the charges. And he knows that. He's being treated, actually, just as the prophets foretold that he would. Think of uh, the uh, promise of Isaiah in chapter 53. He said, As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, did not open his mouth. That was exactly what happened here, wasn't it? Uh, There's a story told about the writer uh, Charles Lamb, uh, who was apparently having uh, a meal with his friends, and as you do, after a few drinks, they started kind of thinking about who they would invite, famous figures from history, uh, to come and have a meal with them, and what they would do, and what they'd ask them when they came in. And apparently Charles Lamb said, well, if Napoleon or Shakespeare came in, we'd get up, we'd shake their hands, and welcome them in. But if Jesus came through the door, we would all fall at his feet in adoration. Well, Jesus, the figure who Charles Lamb said he would fall at his feet, is the silent king here who stands in the dock on trial for his life. And he's exactly who he claims to be and who the people recognise him as. He is the king of the Jews. 
the one that the prophets promised uh, from all those years ago, the one who actually is in total control of what's going on, the one who demands worship and obedience, not mockery. That's the man in the dock, the silent king. Who do we have on the bench? Well, on the bench, we have a struggling governor, a struggling governor. I think the contrast between the decisiveness of Jesus and the indecisiveness of Pilate could hardly be any greater. Uh, On one side, you've got a man who is absolutely sure of his actions, and the other, you've got a man struggling to balance the kind of competing interests of his own career, his own popularity, and the needs of justice. Well, all of us have uh, times in life where we uh, struggle with making a decision. Perhaps uh, you'll have that tomorrow morning when you get back to your desk and you look at your to-do list and you see all the things that you have to do, emails to send and projects to, uh, to, uh, to, to complete and so on and so forth. Uh, sometimes uh, indecision is because of inexperience uh, or inability. We just simply don't have the resources or the knowledge to complete the tasks that we have in front of us. Uh, that wasn't the case for Pilate here. Uh, Pilate was not an inexperienced man. He was the uh, Roman uh, governor or the procurator of Judea, as his proper title. Uh, It was a a serious responsibility. He was directly responsible to the emperor in Rome for the governing of uh, the uh, province of Judea. To even get the position in the first place, he had to be somebody of, of experience and ability. Uh, and by this time in, uh, in his, uh, his life, he'd been, already been the governor for the last 10 years. Uh, he wasn't somebody who was lacking in experience or ability. Uh, he was an able man, by all accounts, although he didn't have a great relationship with the Jewish people, uh, if uh, things are to be believed. There's something else going on here. It's deeper than simply inexperience. It's obvious, isn't it, as we read through uh, this chapter, that, that Pilate was impressed with Jesus. He was impressed with his self-control when he was presented with these, uh, these charges. Uh, Pilate was impressed with his manifest integrity and his innocence. Uh, Pilate was a, a, a man who was, who was familiar with, uh, with, uh, with criminals and brigands and revolutionaries, all kinds of people like that. He got everyone brought before him. He knew Jesus wasn't any of those. He, saw, he knew a criminal when he saw him, and Jesus was no way a criminal. Pilate's conscience was warning him to tread carefully, I think. Well, those impressions of Jesus must have only increased, actually, as Pilate listened to the warning of his wife. We're told, aren't we? This is Matthew's the only gospel writer to, uh, to record this for us. Um, uh, verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Even his wife knew who this man was. <laughs> Uh, she uh, knew that this uh, man that her husband was uh, passing judgment on was innocent and he would only be trouble uh, if uh, he got involved with him. Well, if only Pilate had listened to his conscience. If only Pilate had listened to his wife. Perhaps things might have turned out very, very, very differently. But instead we see him struggling to reach a compromise. Well, it seems uh, from what we uh, can tell uh, that there was a custom at Passover time for the Roman governor to release a prisoner uh, chosen by the crowd. Uh, It was an opportunity, I guess, for the the Romans to humour the Jewish people. They didn't have a great relationship, but this was one way in which they could kind of buy some favour, at least for a few months, and uh, throw them a bone, as it were. Uh, It would improve a sort of uneasy relationship. And it was here, in this, this custom, that Pilate saw a way out for him. 
uh, the answer to his struggles. In his own mind, he knew that Jesus was innocent. I don't think he had any doubt about that. Well, the other prisoner he offered them was a terrorist. He really was a criminal, and there was no doubt about that. Uh, Barabbas, he was a man with blood on his hands. He'd sought to overthrow Rome, as far as we know. He's probably one of the zealots, so they were sort of the uh, Jewish equivalent of the IRA, effectively. He was probably a man a bit like Martin McGuinness, or at least in his earlier life. And surely, when faced with this choice, uh, either release an innocent man or a convicted terrorist, uh, Pilate thought, I guess, that the crowd would choose Jesus. They weren't stupid. They, they knew the difference between these two individuals. And it was here that Pilate saw a way out. He thought that if he could offer, them, offer it to the crowd, the crowd would choose the right man, uh, he could absolve himself of responsibility, and everything would be all right. And yet that wasn't quite how it worked, was it? The crowd preferred the man of violence to the man of love. They demanded the release of Barabbas over Jesus. And in doing so, inadvertently, they provided a wonderful picture, actually, of what Jesus has come to do. Uh, The name Barabbas means literally the son of the father. And it's clear, actually, from other uh, New Testament uh, documents, New Testament manuscripts, that Barabbas' full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. In fact, he's called that in the new uh, NIV, 2011 NIV. Uh, Jesus was a very common name at that time. It simply means God to the rescue. Can you see the irony? Uh, Centre stage here, you've got two sons of the father, uh, both who claim that God is in the business of rescuing his people. One thinks that it's going to come through bloodshed and terrorism. The other one knows it's going to come through selfless, self-giving love. And the innocent one dies in the place of the guilty. Jesus Christ took Jesus Barabbas place that he might go free. There could not be a better picture, could there, of the gospel. And it happened literally hours before Jesus went to his death. While Pilate, meanwhile, we're told, uh, washed his hands. That was a Roman and Jewish custom. He sought to evade responsibility for his actions, like so many people do. And yet the truth is he could never do that. He knew who Jesus was. He knew exactly what he was doing. And yet the truth is that he feared the people far more than he feared God. He would rather please the crowd, buy some popularity, uh, curry favour with them and with his superiors in Rome, than please God. Well, politicians and spin doctors often talk, don't they, about floating voters, that kind of uh, group of the electorates who uh, are a bit undecided. They kind of switch from one to the other at uh, election time. Maybe they don't even turn up to the ballot box. Uh, Who knows? Well, I wonder if we're tempted to be floating voters this evening when it comes to Jesus. A bit like Pilate, we'll do anything we can to avoid having to make a decision over who he is, uh, why he came, and what the consequences are for us. And yet, of course, the truth is that to fail to make a decision is, in fact, to make a decision, isn't it? It's never possible to completely wash our hands as Pilate sought to do so. Uh, We can never just pretend that we don't have a responsibility for how we respond to Jesus Christ. Because one day the situation will be reversed. It won't be Jesus on trial and Pilate's in the judgment seat. It will be Jesus in the judgment seat, 
and we and Pilate will be before him. And we will have to give an account before him of how we have responded to him, of how we've responded to all that we knew of him, all the evidence that uh, he presented to us, his claims, uh, his miracles, uh, his death and his resurrection. Pilate's question, what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ, this evening? Lastly, let's look at the gallery, shall we? And who do we have in the gallery? In the gallery, we have a shifting crowd, a shifting crowd. Pilate offered the crowd twice the chance to have Jesus released. Twice they had a chance to uh, go back and release an innocent man, and yet repeatedly they demanded his blood. In fact, actually it's worse than that, isn't it? They recklessly took upon themselves the guilt of his death. Verse 25, they said, let his blood be on us and upon our children. We don't know whether they were just speaking in the heat of the moment or or quite what they were thinking. You never do know, really, sometimes, do you, with crowds. But it is horrific either way. It's even more so, isn't it, when we consider that uh, less than a week ago they had been acclaiming Jesus as their king and praising him as he entered into uh, Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We sometimes say, don't we, that a week is a long time in politics. I mean, here, even a day seems a long time. What a shiftless bunch. They just shift from one to the other. Well, some uh, Christians, it has to be said, in history have used this verse as a uh, sort of pretext or uh, uh, excuse for anti-Semitism. In fact, actually, some scholars have accused Matthew of being an anti-Semite. Uh, I, I think we can dismiss that as, as being nonsense. It's not, not true. Uh, Matthew is, is clear that the Jews bear responsibility for Jesus' death. Yes, of course they do. But he's equally clear that he doesn't lay sole blame upon them. Yes, it's the cry of the renter mob that stirred up by the religious leaders. Yes, they were the ones who called uh, for his blood. But it was the Gentile Romans who passed the sentence. It was the Gentile Romans who crucified him, who carried out the execution. There's no one party who you can apportion blame to in this situation. I think rather that Matthew's implication is actually that we are all involved. Not just uh, the people who were there, but actually all of us, as we read this account. Because there's nobody, is there, who can justly claim to be innocent when it comes to rejecting Jesus. What Matthew presents for us here is simply a picture of the deceitful, the fickle, the wickedness of the human heart. And all of us have one of those, don't we? There was nothing that Jesus had done to justify the hatred of the crowd. He was one whose whole life was marked, wasn't it, by selfless sacrifice. He, above all men, kept the law in its entirety, perfectly. Uh, The words of Dostoevsky, the writer, he said, there was no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, more perfect than Jesus. Or uh, poet Tennyson, he uh, famously said that Jesus' character was even more impressive than his greatest miracle. You try to uh, pin some dirt on Jesus, you would never find it. And yet still, despite all that, still the crowd uh, sought to kill Jesus. Just as actually the world does today, as we do in our hearts. Well, why? Why this hatred of Jesus? What has he done to deserve this? How can we explain this? Well, it's the same reason that Jesus himself stated, John chapter 7. He said, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. The world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. 
Or as St. John explained in uh, John chapter 3, he said, Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. As long as we avoid Jesus, we can keep up the pretense that we are good people because we can compare ourselves to other standards, can't we? We compare ourselves to uh, Ian Huntley or Idi Amin, and we can say, well, I'm a good person. <laughs> I might even be better than Dave in accounts. He's always nicking uh, free coffee, nicking coffee from the, uh, the coffee bar. But when we encounter Jesus, when we measure ourselves up against the standards of Jesus, then we're confronted with the truth, aren't we? And we're forced to do something about it. Uh, Not so long ago, I read an interview with with an actress, and I can't remember her name, but she was complaining about how uh, the the sort of the uh, HD uh, high definition television had meant that everyone could see her flaws in a way that they couldn't before on the kind of old uh, old cameras and things. And she was complaining about it, and the need that she was going to have to go under the knife or sort herself out if she still wants to have jobs. Now I don't know whether that's true or not, but the truth is that we know that experience, don't we? We can sort of run from the camera, as it were. When we see ourselves in high definition, we see everything. Jesus exposes our flaws. He reveals for us that we're not the people that we like to think of ourselves to be. And yet, of course, it's only when we face up to the truth of who we are and who Jesus is that we can start to address what the real problem is. And the solution lies in the fact that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. As we saw with Barabbas, he took our place, the place that we deserved on the cross. He took our sin on himself. He never wavered from the task. He never uh, looked back. And he did it. All of those who, would, who rejected him might one day be received by him. Well, that's the evidence. The evidence has been heard, hasn't it? The trial is over. Pilate and the crowd have passed their verdicts on Jesus. But I wonder as we close... What's your verdict on Jesus? Who do you think he is? Failed prophet or the divine son of God, the promised Messiah? A pathetic fraud or is he the loving, selfless saviour that he claims to be? In the words of C.S. Lewis, is he liar, is he lunatic or is he Lord? What will you do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do look at this chapter and it is horrific in what it describes. And yet we know that as much as we would like to distance ourselves from it, we see ourselves in this chapter as well, whether it's in the struggling governor, the figure of Pilate, the one who wanted to compromise, the one who was more scared of what other people thought than of doing the right thing and pleasing you, whether it's in the fickle crowd who one minute call you Lord and King, and the next minute, uh, want your blood. We do recognise ourselves, Lord Jesus, and we pray that uh, we would be those who make a right response to you. As we ask that question of Pilate, what shall we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That we would bow the knee to you and acclaim you as our King, and will you be Lord of our hearts this week and always, we pray. Amen.